Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back, everyone, to New Books in Language, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lee Pierce, she, they pronouns, your hostess with the mostess, and today we will be talking with Allison Rowland, the author of the new book, Zoetropes and the Politics of Humanhood. Uh, Allison is a, is a fellow rhetorician, so I'm excited to have her on the show today. And this was a fascinating book that I think people are going to find really like a, like zoetropes, even though it sounds intimidating, is going to be a super useful concept for people to think about a lot of things that are happening in the world right now. And uh, the book really is about the way that we talk about living beings and how that raises or lowers their value. And the book looks at pro-life strategies of calling a fetus a child um, or Pakistani children killed by U.S. drone strikes. Zoetropes and the Politics of Humanhood looks at such discursive practices, discursive meaning ways we talk about things, to um, look at how the systematic account of transvaluations operate in public discourse and lurk on the edges of all language. And I will let Allison explain this concept of transvaluations. So there's other case studies involved. There's the American Gut Project, which is gross and cool, and I'm excited to have Allison talk more about that. Uh, fetal life at the National Memorial for the Unborn, and vital human life at two of the nation's premier fitness centers. So we also might dip into Black Lives Matter and COVID a little bit along the way. I'm excited for Allison to join us, and I will go ahead and kick it over to you, Allison, to tell us more about yourself and how this book came into being and what Zoe tropes and Zoe rhetorics and transvaluations mean. <laughs> Thank you, Lee. Um, hi, everybody. So I... I think that the story of how this book came about and what zoetropes and zoe rhetorics are kind of starts with me nerding out in grad school about rhetorical tropes and rhetorical devices and getting really excited about, you know, these things that are part of the rhetorical tradition for people who study rhetoric. I mean, you hear about, you know, the kind of very popular ones are things like metaphor and metonymy, but then there's like literally thousands of these weird ones that nobody talks about, like prosopopoeia, which is a fancy word for personification, and catacosmesis, which is when you rank things in a sentence. And I just love how many there are, but I don't love what the rhetorical tradition has done with them, which is to sort of push them aside as they're often called the flowers of rhetoric. So they're, the, they're sort of considered mere adornment of language. They're like tools you would use to make your language more beautiful. And there's this vein of scholars that I have a lot of respect for, um, Diane Davis and Joanna Hartelius um, and Lauren Berlant, who are thinking about tropes in a different way. They're thinking about tropes as things that do things, they're productive. They are moments when language is at its most persuasive. So I knew I wanted to do something recuperating rhetorical devices as important. 
And I knew I wanted to link them to issues of social justice in a really direct way. And I've always been very, very interested in reproductive politics and what um, folks have been doing with the fetus as this, the human fetus, as probably the most contested entity, certainly in the contemporary U.S., um, to me, seemed like they were using a lot of rhetorical tropes, right? They were naming, they were using um, prosopopoeia, they were using um, many tropes that I talk about in the book. And I wanted to talk about how these tropes were being used to do something. And so Zoe rhetorics are ways of talking about living beings that raise or lower their status, right? So you can have Zoe rhetorics of promotion, an example of that would be something like Black Lives Matter, right? That movement is a movement with a goal to promote a group of people, right? You can also have Zoe rhetorics that demote, right? That lower instead of raise. And Zoe rhetorics that demote are often more subtle. They're more euphemistic. Um, Zoe rhetorics that promote are very direct, right? Um, Black Lives Matter, great example, very direct. Zoe rhetorics that demote, um, I like to use the example of collateral damage. So when um, when Barack Obama was waging with the CIA, this with, using the CIA at this clandestine drone war, and Pakistani children were killed in these drone strikes, and senior officials in Barack Obama's administration referred to these dead children as collateral damage, I would argue that's Zoe rhetoric that demotes, that lowers, right? Um, so in my book, I name Zoe rhetorics. And then also as a subgroup of Zoe rhetorics, Zoe tropes. So Zoe tropes are Zoe rhetorics that occur in the form of a trope or rhetorical device like prosopopoeia or metaphor. You know, we might want to linger a second on tropes because that, uh, yeah, right. So most people, if people have even heard the word, they often hear it as sort of an ornamentation practice. So mm -hmm. prosopopoeia is the address of an absent being. So um, like when, when someone says like, I heard the dead speak to me, that's a prosopopoeic move. But Maybe talk a little bit about why why they're called tropes because I think most people kind of talk them about them all as metaphors, right? That's how like the average person I think would would name them. So I'm just I don't want to take for granted that people know what tropes are. Yeah, great. So tropes actually come from the ancient Greek word, and I'm not even going to pretend that I know how to pronounce ancient Greek, but strophe or turning, right? So tropes have been tropes are moments where the meaning in a sentence turns from the literal to the figurative. So there are a departure or a deviation or a moment when language is doing something a little extra, right? So, um, and I've never, you probably know how to pronounce this term prosopopoeia that's all over my book that I may be pronouncing wrong because you pronounced it differently than me. Well, I've seen it spelled different ways, and sometimes it's the prosopopoeia, and sometimes it's just the prosopoeia. So it depends if you add the extra P, but I think they're both just two different ways of spelling it. Okay. All right. 
So prosopopoeia, and I would actually put apostrophe and prosopopoeia together. And before I talk about those, actually, let me just make a quick distinction. Those are the kinds of tropes I'm talking about. There's also the term trope. It can also be used to refer to kind of like a theme more broadly, such as the trope of war. And that's a accurate and distinct usage of the word trope, but it's mm. different from the kind of tropes that I'm talking about just for the sake of, for the sake of clarity. Yeah, that's a good point. There's an awesome website called media tropes. Yes. And it talks about the trope of the damsel in distress, the exactly. trope of throwing away the script. And I, yeah, yes. And those are, that's a more general way of thinking, but they, they function the same way, which is they are patterns of language use or, or images or whatever that, that cover over certain like gaps or problems in human expression. Mm-hmm. So they function similarly, but yeah, our, our tropes are typically kind of tinier and, and, and the type of thing like a damsel in distress that might show up using multiple tropes the way that we think of it to produce what I call a media trope or like a theme would probably be a better word for that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Think? Yeah. yeah. And I would say the tropes as in rhetorical devices, the way I use them in my book are utterances at the sentence level. Right, so there are actually things happening yeah, that's at idea. the sentence level. So apostrophe and prosopopoeia are two tropes that I see um, coming out a lot at, for example, this, one of the places where I did my research is a place called the National Memorial for the Unborn. So one of, I have three case studies in the book, and one of them is looking at the National Memorial for the Unborn which is this place in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where unborn babies are memorialized. And I say babies with, you know, some trepidation because the use of the term babies to refer to terminated fetuses is in itself a Zoe rhetoric, right? It's it's not a Zoe rhetoric that is resonant for me, as a pro-choice feminist, but it's a Zoe rhetoric that is resonant for perhaps a pro-life public, right? To call a fetus a baby. And at the National Memorial for the Unborn, a lot of these Zoe tropes are pressed into service of raising the status of the fetal entity. So for example, they might name the fetus. So people are invited to go to their website and order a special bronze plaque and name their baby on the plaque. And then it gets, you know, they, they get a copy of the plaque shipped to them. And then a copy of the plaque gets shipped to the national Memorial for the unborn. And so you can go to this place and see this kind of vast marble wall of names. And it's actually, again, I'm going to be very like clear about my politics as someone who is supportive of, safe legal access to abortion for everyone who needs one. Um, but if you go to this place, I'm not going to lie, it is it is viscerally compelling to be there. Um, it feels powerful. Um, so I think fetal memorialization is, is kind of one of the many strategies of the pro-life movement. And the reason I think it's interesting to to talk about in terms of Zoe rhetorics is because it's, you know, they're direct Zoe rhetorics of raising, of promotion, but I really want people to not think that all raising Zoe rhetorics are good. Right? That's, that's, I think, a really important message underwriting 
the book. I think that um, Zoe rhetorics are dynamic and interdependent and very often the raising of some groups, again, like the fetus, the fetal entity, the promotion in public spaces of the fetal entity is something that ends up hurting and harming lots of other people, including people who can become pregnant, people who have uteruses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is the tricky thing about tropes is that they're not good or bad. (laughs) They're just what they are. Because for example, if you are a person who, you know, like my best friend had to, had to live birth her stillborn baby at eight and a half months, she may want to memorialize that child. Mm -hmm. Right. But when that museum becomes kind of evidence for like heartbeat bills or whatever, that, that shut down choice in other areas, that's that, right. That's like kind of, they move around a lot. And so, you know, it's real. I think people want us to give a verdict. Like, well, is it bad? It's like, well, it depends on what it's being used for. So, yeah, from a pro pro choice perspective about safe, equal access um, that doesn't discriminate on you know regionality or race or gender or whatever. But yeah, they're bad. But to for a totally different context, that museum might be very cathartic for someone. So it's all about the context in which you're using it. And in your case, you're looking at this in a in a particular political context. So. This, yeah, this is something we get pushed back on a lot. I wouldn't be surprised if you've kind of been there too, which is people are like, well, is it bad though? Right, <laughs> right. I do it. Right. It's like, well, I don't know if you should use Zoe rhetorics. I think it depends. Right. I'm really sorry that happened to your friend, by the way. That sounds really- Oh, like yeah. It, um, it was- Well, what was so crazy too, speaking of the tropes and stuff, is when, is when it happened to her, they asked if she wanted photos taken of her in the, you know, the dead which baby. In that context, I call it a baby, even though mm-hmm. in other contexts, it's a feat. Right? Mm-hmm. It depends on, I mean, this is why we do what we do because you have choices of language and you use them differently in different contexts. And all my pro a choice political brain could think of was like, no, you know, this is, this is bad. It's, <laughs> but you got to shift gears to like what it means on that very individual level in that specific context. Like in that case, calling, calling the baby a baby and doing all of these things makes sense. But you know, when that stuff gets elevated to political discourse, that's where it becomes problematic because as we both know, pro-life discourse tends not to admit of much contradiction. Right. Exactly. And I think, I think it makes sense to honor the pregnant or birthing person. What, what is the fetus? or baby to them. Right. You know, that's, that's how I would, that's how I would split that distinction. Yeah. That's a, that's a great thought. And do you, uh, since we're already kind of on this case study, do you want to talk a little bit more about your arguments in the book about the national memorial for the unborn? Because I also wanted to get to some of these, um, these thornier concepts, well, as if Zoe rhetorics isn't thorny enough, but of necropolitics and biopolitics and transvaluation and the chain of being and some of these theoretical conversations that you're entering into in the book. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that for folks who might not read critical theory or biopolitics and necropolitics, um, necropolitics is basically the field of critical studies that looks at death being used to manage populations. And necropolitics is best understood as a rejoinder to biopolitics. And people might associate that term biopolitics with Michel Foucault and Giorgio Agamben and Roberto Esposito. But it's a very, you know, many, many people published on biopolitics. But basically, biopolitics um, studies how populations are governed 
through life and the management of life. So everything from public health initiatives to um, record keeping, right? Government record keeping um, about population health statistics. So all of those things would fall under the rubric of biopolitics. And scholar that I use a lot in the book, Ashil Mbembe, was one of the first people to be like, okay, but why are we talking so much about biopolitics and the government and management of life when so many people are neglected toward death or targeted for killing? And, and he's, um, his primary example is um, South Africa under apartheid. But I think that you know, scholars have used um, necropolitics to look at plantation slavery in the U.S. Um, and, and actually drone strikes in Pakistan and a number of other examples. And I found this um, conversation very compelling because necropolitics, and I would argue that the you know global empire is working under the system of necropolitics in this cur- current moment and necropolitics only works if there are if there's a hierarchy of lives if there are lives worth living right targeted toward life nourished toward vitality and it, and if there are lives at the bottom of the hierarchy um, targeted or neg- neg- neglected toward death or targeted for killing and then I would argue that, you know, we have a series of hierarchical gradations of all the spaces in between those poles. But necropolitics requires a set of hierarchical valuations. And I argue that Zoe rhetorics is, are, they're doing that work. They're the public discourses that enable necropolitics to work because they're saying these people matter, these people don't matter. Yeah, that's an impressive summary <laughs> of what basically constitutes the whole first piece of the book. And then, yeah, so the so right, so the broader theoretical context. I think, and I think people generally get it. Like, why would you care about how people use language to make some lives matter and some lives not matter? But in terms of the stakes, they're a lot higher than just one political debate or you know, just like being nice to people. I mean, they have entire, I mean, entire populations have been wiped out or nearly wiped out because of Zoe rhetorics that have happened throughout history, right? So we're just looking at the contemporary moment, but don't underestimate how this stuff gets used for genocide or, you know, suppression or in the United States, right? Especially we think of like indigenous Americans, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So um, so that first chapter really sets a great context, I think, for thinking about why these case studies, because uh, they're cool case studies, you know, because you, you've got the, the the gut the gut project, which is kind of cool and kitschy and national, and then you've got fetal life at this museum, which of course is both a cool local installation, but also taps into this big major name political controversy, and then you've got this quirky uh, fitness center, so. It seems as if in some ways, some of these are just kind of everyday quirky life studies, like cultural studies. But when you think about them in the biopolitical context, they're really tapping into like very large issues that have, I mean, just, you know, the stakes for hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. Can I, can I say something about the stakes there? Because I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah. I, I recognize that this is, you know, I'm being perhaps hyperbolic. I'm risking hyperbole by saying that. Zoe rhetorics are a matter of life and death. 
But I, th- I really deeply believe that's true because how we, how much we value people, right? That's something that is produced in public discourse and how much we value and not just people living entities, right? How much we value living entities predicts how we allocate resources, how we allocate positive attributions, right? Attributions of virtue or intelligence or things like that. I think they're all Zoe rhetorical. And I would also say that for any, uh, for any uh, movement of mass violence, right? Whether it's a genocide or you can even look at um, police killings, right? That are happening right now. There's always a Zoe rhetorical movement Mm-hmm. demoting that group of people before the violence occurs. And then afterwards, right, there's a Zoe rhetorical movement that's attempting to rationalize and justify that violence as well. So Zoe rhetorics are both always a precondition and always um, you know, a post hoc discussion for any major violent, m- movement violence against a group. Well, yeah. And I think this gives us a really good vocabulary because one of the things I have always have a hard time explaining to people is why all lives matter is a devaluation of black life. Because Mm -hmm. to them, all lives matter is like, we might call it like Zoe rhetoric neutral, Mm -hmm. right? If all all lives matter. So I'm out, like I don't have to value or devalue life. I'm just, all life is important. But that number one, no, because you're not taking into account the history of Zoe rhetorics that have devalued black life. Exactly. Right? So, so we're not starting from neutral. And then number two, you kind of always have to make a choice. <laughs> and I know people don't like to hear that. I mean, I think that's what tropes kind of force us to recognize is that if you if you use language to describe anything, there is an inherent valuation made. Yes. Yeah, yes. absolutely. So, mm-hmm. so I, I appreciated the, the variety of case studies because they kind of go from like the innocuous to the the much higher stakes, but across all of them, it's like, no, the stakes are there no matter where you are. And I appreciated that aspect of the book. Um, And if you don't mind, you you wrote something really beautiful in the introduction about your interaction with a student that I think fits here or that I had hoped to read. Would you mind if I read a few sentences to to you? not at all. (laughs) Of your own writing? Okay. So this happens in the introduction where Allison is introducing the concept of necropolitics, which is, you know, politics of of, of who lives and who dies. Um, So... Allison is describing exactly what she said. At the risk of hyperbole, Zoe rhetorics are a matter of life and death. And then describing uh, when trying to explain Zoe rhetorics to a political theorist friend, he said, quote, but it's just words. Do words really matter that much? Don't words distract us from the real violence? His words floored me, but the interaction served as a reminder that not all disciplines steep themselves in the constitutive power of public discourse. Far too many scholars, even critical ones, subscribe to a false binary that separates discourse from matter. Discourse is matter. Discourse matters. To rehash an old dichotomy between action and discourse delimits our capacity to apprehend discursive effects. Consider the deadly effects of repeatedly referring to a group of persons as subhumans, like the Nazis did of the Jews. They were literally called Untermeschkin or Undermen. They were also referred to as rats and filthy animals. And then you go on to describe the Rwandan genocide, um, describing the Tutsis as cockroaches, snakes, and insects. So, yeah, so I just wanted to to kind of quote that back because I thought that was a great aspect of the book. And, you know, not coincidentally, exactly where we wound up in the conversation. Yeah. And I appreciate you saying that. And because for folks like us who study rhetoric and communication, 
were like language matters, like totes, obvi, like we like we get it. <laughs> but I think that for for people who aren't steeped in those traditions, um, there is this sort of like, but it's just words. Sticks and sure. stones can break my bones, right? That kind of thing. Um, and I and I I think that, and that's also what I'm trying to do with tropes and in, in this recuperative reading of tropes is to say tropes are doing things in the world tropes are having these effects yeah and with um and with that it, i don't know if you want to say anything else about the intro but i wanted to ask you about the cover it's a it's a very beautiful cover and i hate to ask about covers because like the poor audience they can't see what's going on but um it's like dead sunflowers i think kind of, and it's and it's a it's a it's a live photo so it's not a, a replica or a drawing it's it's an actual you know like I don't know. I have no photography language, but it's a photo of a real thing put on the cover. And then it has this sort of, I don't know, they look like turquoise blown up long animal balloons, like fingers. And they hang in sort of this just like cascading nest with what looks to be like slime on top of them. I don't know. It's the coolest. It's a cool cover. So I thought maybe you could tell us what that has to do with the book. Yeah. Thanks so much for bringing this up because I love this cover and a good friend of mine, a conceptual artist, Sarah Noble, um, ha- uh, made this made this image, and I also want to like kind of be more specific about the slime and be a little bit vulgar. It kind of looks like someone ejaculated on it. Yes, right. If we're just going to like name what it looks like, um, but what I like about this cover is so the flowers on the top of this column, this kind of stacked column of live udders or fingers, they're dead. And I talk a lot about, especially in the third case study, um, Boulder, Colorado, and and the white elites who exercise in gyms there and are um, semi-professional athletes. I I talk a lot about white privilege and what it means to be a body whose life is encouraged and nourished toward vitality, and. I love that the flowers on the top are dead because to Mm -hmm. me, it's like a reminder that yes, there are in this world, many people's lives, um, the lucky few, but a good chunk of people whose lives are encouraged or nourished toward vitality, who are the beneficiaries of promotional Zoe rhetorics, a, Mm -hmm. a history, a long history of promotional Zoe rhetorics. Um, I include myself among them. Sure. Um, but we're not going to a flor- to flourish on top of a rotten system. So that's that's what the cover does for me. It kind of is a reminder that many of the material advantages that I have and other people have sit directly on top of the exploitation of many people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, wh- what is the is it? Do you read Ursula Le Guin, the novelist? Yeah, I do. She's got this really good book. Oh gosh, about the broom closet and the Omalas, and it's this short story. It's at the beginning of an Elizabeth Povanelli uh, book, I think. Um, but it's about this story of this group of people that live this wonderful life, but there's they all know that they only live that life because there's this child rotting in a broom closet. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I have read this book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, and then and she sort of says that like that's kind of what ethical societies are. They're not societies without suffering. They're societies that acknowledge that their system of privilege is like a distri- a, a, a differential distributed misery. 
Yeah, that's incredible. And it's like, it's like sad to think about, but you can't, you know, like there's just no way you can go through life thinking about, thinking about like the evacuation of suffering as the goal, right? You're, you're better off thinking about like, uh, yeah, on what systems of misery does your own thriving depend? And then what can you do to sort of balance those scales? Right, exactly. And yeah. you, actually you saying it is at the beginning of a um, Elizabeth Pavanelli book reminds me that a word that I use throughout the book is existent. And that's existent right. with an ENT at the end, meaning a living entity, right? Or someone who's you know, circumscribed within a bio-ontological enclosure. And I and I use this word all the time. And when I say it plural, existence, it sounds like I'm saying existence with like an ENC at the end, but I'm saying sure. existence, like l- multiple living beings, living beings, plural. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that was, no, that's a fantastic. I, I actually am very inspired by a lot of speculative fiction and science fiction. Oh yeah, definitely. Octavia Butler is is one of my, one of my mm-hmm. favorites. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I will. I have some book recommendations because I've I did two uh, I did two interviews recently on rhetorical theory that like look at speculative fiction and I had a lot of fun with those books. Mm, but not a lot of speculative fiction in your books. So. No, no, there's not. <laughs> um, let's. Um, although you know, at times some of the hilarious. I mean, it's not hilarious, but some of the the uncanny descriptions you have of some of these virtual and physical spaces is is bo- it's bordering on like a dystopian novel. So. We've talked a little bit about fetal life at the National Memorial for the Unborn, but let's talk about microbial life at the American Gut Project, which we haven't mentioned at all. Yeah. So one Especially of the- talking about biopolitics. I think this is a great place to start. Right. Exactly. So I've been, you know, the, the sort of founding inspiration for this chapter is I'm absolutely so unable to resist the clickbait of like, what you should be feeding your gut microbes or like your gut microbes are 99% an exaggeration. They say 90, your gut microbes are 90% of the cells in your body are microbial life that doesn't share your DNA. And, and this kind of rise of um, lots of advents of microbial research, especially in human guts in the last 10 years, but then also this subsequent rise of what I would call a popular science public that circulates around these gut microbes. And the features of the pop science public around gut microbes in the US are that there's these, they're very, there's lots of juxtapositions of, you know, earnest science writing and great science writers popularizing um, information about human gut relations. But then there's also this sort of other side of the quacks and the nostrums. And I think famously Deepak Chopra um, claimed that our gut microbes can hear our thoughts. And so there's this like, I mean, actually talk about speculative fiction. There's a lot of speculation about who are we as humans? If we are, as these scientists are claiming, if we are, if 90% of the cells in our body are microbial life that don't share our DNA. And which, by the way, is a little bit of like a rhetorical hedge because um, eukaryotic cells are heavier and bigger than prokaryotic cells. So, you know, the cells are smaller. So it's like a little bit of a false claim. But um, what does this mean for human life? I think people are excited about, you know, what am I? And I really want to make the case in 
this chapter that a lot of this popular rhetoric on gut microbes um, falls prey to or is circumscribed within this dominant metaphor of the human immune system as defending the body at war. And there's lots of scholars who have um, looked at how the way we talk about um, the human immune system is um, centered on a war metaphor, right? Your white blood cells are the soldiers that protect you from the attack of a pathogen. And the way that this gets shifted in talking about microbes in this particular moment is really interesting because the tenor and the vehicle of the metaphor, the body at war, stay the same, but the mood of the metaphor shifts, which is that instead of being about um, your body's at war, it's that your body's still a mini empire, but, but instead of being at war with microbes like we used to be, now we have this sort of paternalistic um, uh, responsibility to cultivate our microbial life. And I want to argue that that is the same shift of colonial relations, right? It, it's the shift from um, we're at war to this kind of colonial paternalism. And the some of the language that some scientists of the microbiome use really, really unwittingly to them support my argument because they're, um, Jeff Leach in particular is this guy that I go after a lot because he has this blog and he talks about, I mean, he literally calls the Hadza people of Tanzania, he calls them feral and he does, he, he, like really searching for words for this because it's quite a thing. And I'm trying not to let my evaluation of his actions seep too much into how I'm describing it. So he decides he's going to do this fecal transplant. He's going to take, he's, he's living in Tanzania with the Hadza and he really wants this quote, diverse human microbiome. And I, mm-hmm. I make the case that we kind of conflate racial diversity with human microbiome diversity in this discourse and he's and he is trying he decides he's going to ask this Hadza man of roughly the same age as him to do a fecal transplant and to basically give him his poop right so he can have this healthy microbiome or what he would call what he would think of as this feral primitive microbiome so like lots of problems with act- activating africans as this dark um, ancestral prior other and yeah. um, conf- and um, metonymically sliding them together with animals, right? It's a, it's a really, really problematic set of things for contemporary scientists to be doing. And one of the other things that he does, I mean, I think it's so interesting, like who owns, who owns a microbiome of a group of people? And it brings up, um, debates about when the human genome project was trying to collect genes mm-hmm. from indigenous groups. I mean, who owns that? And there's these like old links between whiteness and property that are really problematic here. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, in some, 
um, my argument about the, and the American gut project is a, um, is sort of the, the example that I use to talk, talk through this whole chapter. And the American gut project is a citizen scientist project where you basically, um, say you want to participate, pay them a hundred dollars. They mail you, um, something that you can collect a sample of your feces with. You like poop on this stick, you mail it back, and then they add it to their kind of vast amount of data on the microbial life in our bodies. Well, yeah. And I oh, mean, I love this part. So you, you talk about a bunch of different things, um, but this particular this particular piece about leech and the, and the blog and this Tanzania project. Um, right. So you say two things in this chapter. One, it's like, look, I'm not saying leech is what we might call like an, like an obvious, but it's like surface racist, right? right? Intentional racist. But this whole practice of you have to manage your population, you have to integrate the other, you have to diversify your microbiome, is systemically racist, be- not because diversity. Not you know, on the surface, it seems like the right thing to do, right? Oh, I want my white gut. My, I want my white gut biome to be diversified. It mm-hmm. seems almost like good, except that we have spent. And by we, I mean white people, not Allison and I, but as part of a system, we have spent centuries wiping out primitive people precisely for, in part, their micro gut biome. Right? I mean, if you think about it, right? That this, and so now we have this nostalgia, and I think you say this somewhere. Um, you talk about the nostalgia for the people that live. Yeah, here you go. Okay, I know I marked this. Um, feral in this in this hierarchy of the gut project, feral humans living close to nature as opposed to culture offer the key to a host of modern Western health ailments. Eating for microbial diversity expresses a nostalgia for a time when human dietary practices better supported human physiology. In this way, the discourse of microbiome diversity compares closely to another current trend, the paleolithic or the paleo diet. Um, right. This and, and this is a problem because on the surface, it might seem like, oh, yay, get back to your roots, like appreciate native cultures, blah, 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 except we don't, right? We're appropriating the parts of them that serve Western, quote unquote, like elitism and progress after centuries of exploiting them and genocide. And yet we're not also doing the systemic things we need to rebuild their societies. Right. We're still farming them, right? Literally for shit. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this was really well done. I mean, you put together a great archive in this chapter. I think if I had to guess, I think it's my favorite in the book. Oh, wow. Thank you. Although it kind of wrote it in some ways, like you can't make this stuff up. I mean, they, you know, the one about the stuff that the guy was saying about your microbiome as being like the little, the little workers in your little city. Yeah. It was like, oh, he just handed you that. <laughs> I know, I know. I it's it surprised me once I started looking for the human body as mini empire narrative. Yep. I found yep. it everywhere. They can't think outside of it. Which, yep. it gosh, isn't this a great argument for why it's so important to integrate the humanities into science, scientific oh, I inquiry? I know. Um, yeah, it's a fabulous chapter. Do you want to say anything else about it before we move on to talking about the gyms, which I thought was really interesting, especially – well, we'll talk about it later, but with all the gyms closing over COVID, and I'm in New York, and all the gyms and the yoga studios are suing uh, are suing the state because the state has pushed them back for opening because they're sort of like superfluous. Yeah. And 
reading the legislation that they made about why they're essential is so, so vibes with what you're talking about in this chapter. So I really, this was like very timely for me to read. Oh, I'd love to get my hands on that set of texts. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. Let's see if I can can find the bill and send it to you because I read it a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Sounds good. Let's talk about the gyms because I think for a lot of people at face value, they're like, what is this chapter? Like she just, (laughs) she like worked out at the gym and that's her like, you know, ethnographic practice. What is that? But I think that for me, it's so important to look at how people of privilege are moving and operating in this space. In in a um, Jacqueline Rhodes has this great sentence that I quote: "Right, what do lives of privilege look like in moments of empire or under empire?" And mm-hmm. and the way that and I say these people, but like, let's be clear. I was certainly one of those people who were who were doing this, right? I mean, I I don't want to like let myself off the hook here. And I'm not I'm not trying to argue you shouldn't exercise or exercise is bad. That is like definitely not what I'm trying to argue. But I think the case that I'm trying to make here is that the rhetorics around, and, and again, Boulder's a very, very specific place, right? I yeah. mean, I think mm-hmm. I have this anecdote where I'm, you know, at a barbecue and realize that like 10 out of the 12 people there were semi-professional athletes in some kind of field, right? But the way that whiteness operates there and the way that privilege is operating there I think is Zoe rhetorical because there's so many narratives of rationalization and justification. It's like this narrative of, I think a great one that I, that came up in my interviews all the time when I was there, I think is fascinating. Um, the language of earning calories. I, I think this is fascinating. So it's this idea that if you like work out really hard and you are in some kind of training regimen at any time, then you have earned calories, right? Like you, you are allowed to go eat food mm. as opposed to, with, with, you know, with the, with the assumption being that if you didn't do that hard work, do you really deserve the food that you need to help your body sustain life? Um, or that you don't need, because that's really the irony of this, right? Is like it's it. A lot of times, it's food you don't need that you have dessert. That you, I mean, it's really thorny. I I liked this part. It was really clever. Yeah, the, and the the ways in which if you do, and these for folks not who don't have access to what these subcultures are like. I'm talking like people who are doing thirty to forty mile bike rides or people who are ultra runners and logging a hundred miles a week, right? Whatever their thing is. Mm-hmm. The fascinating thing is by doing that additional exercise, they actually require more units of energy in their body. They require more calories in their body. Therefore, right, they are using more of the world's resources in order to exercise their privilege. And again, I want to be clear. I'm not saying we shouldn't exercise, right? But I'm saying that the attributions of virtue to this kind of working out is so problematic and it just doesn't ever get touched. Like nobody touches this. Nobody critiques it. And I think it's weird. Yeah. I actually have a piece, fingers crossed that it gets published about the vegan versus meat eater debate. 
Mm-hmm. So when they published the Game Changers um, documentary like two years ago about vegan athletes, it kind of re-energized the vegan argument for elite bodybuilders and stuff being vegan. And then, of course, like some of these like real advocates of even they've even got this thing called the carnivore diet now, which is ninety nine percent meat. Whoa. I mean, it's ridiculous. And this argument about vegan protein versus meat protein, and, and what's best for elite athletes, and all this stuff. And 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 we think that the fight is to fight for veganism. But the argument that I make is like the thing we miss here is the insane amount of protein consumption that gets valorized in these arguments for elite level living when most people don't get the 0.6 grams of protein they need to sustain basic right nutritional yes minimums. Yes. And so even though you think it's a debate between veganism and meat eating and that if you're on the side of veganism, you're winning, we're, we're all still losing because it's this obsession with just getting like all of this protein. Yeah. And protein becomes like a morality marker and a marker of like optimal health. But of course, what none of this touches is like, what about the vast majority of the world that gets total insufficient protein while you're over here justifying your consumption of protein is not only like like something you're entitled to, but also that makes you morally good. Yes. No, I I love that. I'd love to read that piece because I'm, because that's what I'm so fascinated by are the stories that elites tell themselves in order to justify that they get to kind of sit at the Mm -hmm. top of the hierarchy. Right. And, and some of those stories are attributions of virtue. Like, look how hard I work out of the gym, right? Like I earned this, I deserve this. Right. Or look how hard I you know, do look how much, look how busy I am, right? That's also this kind of status marker or virtue signaling. Like I'm so busy at my job. I do all this work. Therefore it's okay that I earn the money that I do um, because I work so hard. And I think that those are Zoe rhetorics, right? They're, they're kind of fictions that circulate in order to produce and sustain a hierarchy. Yeah, absolutely. And you call it, uh, you had a really phrase uh, in the conclusion of this chapter, you say it's a critique of life building, Mm. which I like because it's like you're taking bodybuilding and turning it into a whole set of things. Like you could even do it like optimal interior design or when people like feng shui their house, right? These are life building practices, just like bodybuilding or fitness that all have moral equivalencies that don't acknowledge their contribution to like Zoe rhetorics, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And, and don't acknowledge, and I think the, the ethnographic datum that I share of the first time around, I did this research, not even noticing, and this is by design, right? Not even noticing the women of color and in that space, often Latinx women who were um, doing the kind of like daily labors and mm. maintenance in the women's mm. locker room in some of these expensive gyms. Um, their labor makes the, yes. you know, the life building processes that other people get to do possible. Yeah, you have a great, I think this is at the, this might be toward the end of this chapter. It's page 136. And you say, um, as aspirant vital bio citizens, we, I use the inclusive pronoun shamefully now, do not tell each other that we are going to raise our social status or that we are going to accumulate embodied privilege or that we are on the lucky side of capitalism's mean flows. Rather, we tell ourselves that we are working toward our health, our future, our life. But even as we work toward life, we still require an other to bound or delineate this social belonging. Practices of vitality might accrue attributions of virtue 
But as these practices are obsessively internalized in the gyms at which I made observations, these attributions of virtue have nothing to do with the ethical obligations of social justice. Wow. Good Just so I know you wrote that. You wrote that. I know. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's fabulous. Uh, so we are coming up. I, 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 this always happens. I look up and suddenly 50 minutes have passed. But we haven't talked much about the conclusion. Um, and you're sort of, you lay out kind of like a Zoe rhetorical theory, which I appreciate and we'll be using. Uh, and uh, we really didn't get back to the museum at all. So is there any, like maybe one last concept metaphor or case study or feature of the book you want to chat about or a new project even that you've got coming out? I, yeah, there's one last piece that I want to talk about and that I want to say something about what I call for in the conclusion, which is Zoe rhetorical attunement. And I mm, kind mm-hmm. of also played around with calling this Zoe rhetorical literacy. And the idea behind that is that I would love not just scholars, but everyday folks to be able to suss out some of these messages that make hierarchies some of the messages that we're getting all the time on a regular basis um, in various, whether it's entertainment media or speeches from elected officials or all of all of the places, social media, right, where discourse circulates, um, we're constantly getting hit with Zoe rhetorical messages. So messages, in other words, that say the lives over here matter, the lives over here don't matter. Um, and I think that Some of those messages are direct and obvious, and many, many, many of them are not, especially the messages that demote or lower. And I would love all of us to get better at um, being more attuned to how those raisings and lowerings happen in tandem. Yeah. And if I could uh, give one that really, it's it's not sending your kids to public school. Hmm. Like my kids got to, and the reason I know this is because when I was a kid, my mom put us in the worst pot. Not that we had a lot of money. I mean, we couldn't have gone to like the fancy private school, but we probably could have gotten into the slightly nicer public school. And my mom sent us to the crappy public school because she was like, they need our resources. Mm-hmm. You know, and yes, did it mean that we got less of an education? Sure. Did it mean there was a little more violence? Sure. Did it mean that, you know, like you had all these drawbacks, but it's like so often I see people, especially now that most of my friends have kids entering school and it's like, well, I need them to get the best education possible. It's like, right. But you're sucking out all the resources from the public schools that need you. Mm-hmm. And that's, a, and, and you know, and I understand there are good reasons for making that choice. So I'm not, I'm not like condemning anyone, but it is a Zoe rhetoric that I don't, that I think people feel very rationalized and justified and they, and they don't acknowledge like, oh, this is a, distribution of privilege and injury that I feel entitled to, but you know, am I entitled to it? And what kind of damage do I do for what kind of gain, right? Right. Because you're essentially saying, and I, as a parent, I don't hold this against any parent for thinking. No, no, this. I don't either. And I'm not a parent. Right. So I don't, you know, I, I don't know that I'd make the same choice in but, a different situation. But they are essentially saying, mm, you know what? My child does matter more to me yes. than these other <laughs> children, right? And that's the, that's the Zoe rhetorical message implicit, right? And that's, I mean, I, again, I totally get it as a parent, but I also think it's like, we accept it far too much. I think we should be thinking about everybody else's kids. 
Right. And, and again, that might be a hard one to swallow, but like, I'll give you another one. I, you know, I, I, I live outside of Rochester, which is a really, you know, it's like a medium sized city. There's a lot of class disparity, right? Tons of impoverished, low socioeconomic people, and then tons and tons of, of white, um, you know, new money. And there's tons of these yoga studios, these really high end, heated, beautiful yoga studios in these refurb. I mean, these places are just stunning. And they're, you know, hundreds of dollars a month and they have all these heated classes and stuff. Or there are local community donation-based yoga places that are not that nice. They're in church basements. But you could but, – but like there's one in Rochester called Yoga for a Good Hood. And mm. it's, it's a redistributive yoga practice. And again, of all the things that like low socioeconomic people need, I don't know that yoga is high on the list. I haven't done the research. But it is something to give your money to somewhere where you're going to exercise in not as nice conditions next to people who maybe don't have all of the privilege and the, you know, because you're redistributing those resources as opposed to taking them and recirculating them with people who already have privilege. So that's a really basic Zoe rhetoric that I think lots of people can participate in thinking about the chapter you have here on the gyms and the fitness centers. Mm -hmm. Right, thinking about how your physical pursuing a physical fitness could be an act of social good, without it being an act of, of without it being a promotional Zoe rhetoric, right? Yeah, I like that or, example in the, in the in, in, and a demotional one at the same time. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Do, you, do you have any in terms of? Because I always like to leave people with maybe like something to do with all of this. Like, hey, be aware now. So, do you, do you have a form of Zoe rhetorical literacy that you have noticed? Um, that's you know, outside the book. Actually, a, a good friend sent me a text of one that I was like, yes, that's a Zoe rhetoric. Um, it was the New York Times changing their editorial policy to capitalize the B for black. Oh, yeah. I've read a bunch of stuff about, yes, yes. I was like, mm-hmm. yes, that is, that is a Zoe rhetoric. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, I love that. That was kind of exciting. And it's obviously a very subtle one. Some, oh, it's one that um, would only be possible in written texts, right? So wouldn't communicate orally, but still I was like, yeah, that is, that's a Zoe rhetorical move. Yeah. And, and orally, you know, a practice, this is good. This is great. See, we got solutions. Rhetoricians have solutions, all kinds of stuff, but I, you know, I encourage my students to not say blacks and whites, even if that's what the, the literature says, you know, yeah. say, say black people, black folks, black Americans, whatever you want to say. Mm-hmm. But even though I know blacks and whites seems neutral because well, I'm not saying white people, I'm saying whites. It's like, well, no, but it's not the same because the whites don't have the uh, epithets like tacked on implicitly at the end of them after centuries of oppression, right? Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, this was great, man. This you're, you're really fun to talk to. And this book was, number one, I just thought a great read. It has the perfect combination of like quirky and local and also the deep cut theory that I love. Oh, thank you so much. I really and the pictures were really helpful. <laughs> you know, you had some really cool illustrations in here. So I cannot recommend the book enough. And once again, uh, this is the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lee Pierce. We've been speaking with Allison Rowland on the book Zoe Tropes and the Politics of Humanhood. And shout out to Ohio State University Press, who published this book. We love the Ohio State University Press. Uh, we appreciate their support of NBN and Rhetoric Books, because without their work and their editorship, it would be hard for books like Allison's to get out into circulation. So obviously, what we hope is you'll head out and pick up a copy of the book. Um, it's a nice slim volume. We'll, we'll, we'll fit easily into a small bag as you travel around um, get out some fresh air this summer and have a nice easy beach read. But more importantly, if you don't want a copy for yourself, you can buy one, preferably hard copy, uh, but, but paperback is okay. And donate it to your local library. Like speaking of 
of Zoe rhetorical practices that are emancipatory, right? Give the book to the library, read it, and then donate it. Um, you, you can ask your university library to publish one. You can at, and you can request that your local library purchase one too, but they're not exactly flush with cash right now. So the best thing to do, I think, is to, if you love the book and you love the ideas, get it, get a hard copy, read it, and then donate it so that other people can enjoy this book as well that maybe don't have the means to access the book on their own. Uh, Allison, do you want to say anything by way of sign-off or maybe future projects you're working with or where people can contact you if they have questions? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if you want to contact me with questions, and I absolutely invite um, arguments and discourse and responses, and I'm really hungry for feedback on the, the book, um, you can email at aroland, A-R-O-W-L-A-N-D, at stlawu.edu. So that's stlawu.edu. So I'm a professor at St. Lawrence University. Yes. And I will put that in the show notes. So if you're listening uh, on the website or in the app, you can just look at the show notes and there's a link there to Allison's email as there is to uh, my social media. If you would like to follow me at Rhetorically for upcoming interviews, book promotions, and my own book coming out soon. So I'm excited to share that. Although now I have to inter- now I have to get Allison into the into the footnotes. So I'm going to have to contact my editor and tell them I have one last, <laughs> one last revision. Well, Allison, this has been a pleasure. Do you want to say anything by signing off or is there maybe a book you're reading right now that you might want to recommend for the audience? Um, I am a big lover of Kate Mann's work and she has a new oh, book yes. coming mm-hmm. out. Um, I forget. I don't even know what it's called. I just like added it to a shopping cart and was like, yeah, yeah, wait. <laughs> So she's she's a philosopher who's who does really great work on entitlement and misogyny. I'm so excited. Oh, terrific! Well, I, yeah, I know I know Kate Mann, so I will look up that book. And also, you did mention in your book, um, Jane Sutton and uh, Miss Food Marie Mary Lee Miss Food. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yes, and they are coming on the show next week to talk about uh, another book about tropes. Oh, great! So, That's so exciting. Yeah. Yeah, I know. My little rhetoric family. All right. Well, thank you so much, New Books listeners. Uh, We've used up enough of your time. Stay safe. I hope you enjoy the interview. And once again, definitely check out a copy of Zoe Tropes and the Politics of Humanhood by Allison Rowland. Goodbye. Goodbye.